it was evident that my wife was going to have a baby that night. We did not know if it was going to be a boy or girl, but since we already had three girls, I was pretty confident that it would be a fourth. And I was not disappointed. But the surprising thing about the birth that night was its time. Katie Elizabeth came into the world at the stroke of midnight. The doctor turned to me and said, you choose the date. And so my choices were these, July 6, 1987, or July 7, 1987. And since 7787 was easier to remember, that became her birth date. You rarely get to choose the date after a baby is born. Professor John Furling wrote in the Smithsonian Magazine several years ago that the historic vote on American independence was taken on July 2nd, not on July 4th. July 4th became the national holiday only by pure accident. It seems that the very first anniversary in 1777 was a time when people were very preoccupied. Congress was too busy prosecuting a war, and even though the young country was a year old, it was still very fragile and weak. But realizing that the anniversary was at hand, they bought themselves 48 hours by planning to celebrate on July 4th. That particular day was a Thursday, and as the, guy, the sky grew dark, they started their celebration. A band composed of Hessian prisoners of war made the music. Thirteen rockets were fired over Philadelphia, one for each of the colonies. And so, July 4th became known as Independence Day, and we've celebrated the 4th of July ever since. You rarely get to choose the date after the baby is born. But that's exactly what we did. And now we come to the 245th birthday of America, if my math is correct. And I think it's a good time to reflect. You know, you don't always get the 4th of July on a Sunday. Uh, the last time was 2010. The next time, I think, is is uh, 2127 in another six years. But when I follow my normal Bible reading schedule, the week of July 4th has me reading Proverbs chapter 14. And in that chapter is a striking verse. I have it on the screen for you, Proverbs 14, 34. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. The New Living Translation puts it in a slightly different fashion, and I think it is very good. Godliness makes a nation great, but sin is a disgrace to any people. And on the birthday of our country, I would like for us today to reflect upon that amazing verse. First of all, it speaks of a great nation, and a nation is great because godliness makes a nation great. Now, this is from God's perspective. 
you won't read this in the news. But God knows exactly how to form a nation to be stable and prosperous and successful. And he says, at the heart of it all, the reason for it all is this thing called righteousness or godliness. It has a positive influence on the people who dwell in that land. Righteousness exalts, it, it honors, it uh, elevates, it benefits. It's an advantage to a people living in any one particular area. Proverbs 11.11 says, Through the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, it is destroyed. Godliness is living like God. Righteousness is rightness. <laughs> That's not a very good definition when you take the word and define it by the word, but that's exactly what it is. Righteousness is doing right. But that begs the question, according to whom? Who develops the standard of what is right and what is wrong? Well, the answer should be obvious. But we often get it so wrong. The answer has to be the one who created us, determines for us what is right and what is righteous and godliness is merely a reflection of his character right and that's what makes a nation great when they follow after the right paths of their creator and reflect his character and the framers of our Constitution while they didn't get everything right they got that part right. I'm not saying that they were all born-again Christians, but it is interesting when you go back and simply look at the facts, they had a strong belief in God. I listened to a PBS special not too long ago on the Declaration of Independence, and here, coming from a group that is not known for their godliness, they made this statement, all the founders were believers in God, not an atheist among them. They reasoned if rights come from a king, they could be taken away by a king. But if rights come from God, they cannot be taken away except by God. That's a great statement. And so we are endowed, endued, blessed by our creator with inalienable rights, rights coming from him and not from any other source. God is the head of it all. David McCullough, who has written so many wonderful books on the founding of our country, wrote a book called 1776, one of my favorites, and he just goes through the whole year, an amazing year. After reading that book, there's no way that this country could exist, but it did. He simply states the declaration was clearly based on a creator. And God is mentioned four times in that declaration of independence. Or how about this? If you venture to Washington, D.C., to the Jefferson Monument or the Jefferson Memorial, 
you will see written on the northeast portico these words. God who gave us life gave us liberty. Can the liberties of a nation be secure when we have removed the conviction that these liberties are the gift of God? Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just, that His justice cannot sleep forever. Wow. So that is indeed the thinking of those who brought together this new nation. It was George Washington who said it's impossible to rightly govern a nation without God and the Bible. But here's the problem. While maybe once there was the fear of God, in many places we have forgotten God. And now we are actively fighting against God. And that will be the destruction of any nation. Proverbs 14 in this very same chapter, verse 11 says, The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the godly will flourish. Same idea. But then it says in verse 12, There is a way that seems right to each person, but in the end, it leads to death. So now we go back in history and try to rewrite what was written and try to understand a Declaration of Independence outside of Creator God. And it seems as though we're living in the time of the judges, doesn't it? Where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. There's no king in Israel. Everyone does what, what is right in their own eyes. Everyone decides what they think is right. But there's a way that seems right to each person, and it ends in death. I love celebrating birthdays, except my own. And, and it's neat that the country has lasted as long as it has, and I trust we've got a long way to go, but we've got to be honest. This is a good time to to reflect upon where we've been and where we are and where we're going. And we've got to remember that God is the one who establishes what is right, and He has done that in His holy word. The Bible declares what is right. And perhaps that is why the Ten Commandments are on the building of the Supreme Court and in the halls of Congress, in God we trust. Os Guinness, who is a strong believer in Jesus Christ and a brilliant individual, he uh, works, he's a senior fellow at the uh, East-West Institute in New York, author of about 20 books, I think. He said this, there's a golden triangle in freedom where each of the sides are interconnected. Freedom requires virtue, number one. Virtue requires faith, number two. And faith requires freedom. And they are interdependent. And the greatest enemy to freedom is freedom. 
when we began to think that we can set up the boundaries and everyone does that which is right in their own eyes. But that's not the way this country started. One of my favorite quotes, and I've used this before, on a holiday like Memorial Day or the 4th of July, comes from Alexis de Tocqueville. Alexis de Tocqueville was a French diplomat in the 19th century. He's a political scientist and historian. He tra traveled over to America to study the way that this new country was growing and the way it was founded. And he wrote his most famous work, a two-volume set called Democracy in America that was published somewhere in the mid-1800s. And people offer, often are quoting, as I have, these words. I sought for the greatness and genius of America in her fertile fields and boundless forests, but it was not there. Sought for the greatness and genius of America in her rich minds and vast institutions of learning. It was not there. On and on it goes. And then he comes down to this last line. He says, not until I went to the churches of America and saw them aflame with righteousness did I understand the greatness and genius of America. America is great because America is good. When America ceases to be good, America ceases to be great. These lines are uplifting and poetic, but spurious, because Tocqueville never wrote them. Those who have studied all of his writings have not found anything like these quotes. Well, something like it. In fact, his book talks a lot about the importance of religion and God, but you just don't have this beautiful quotation. Well, where in the world did it come from? Apparently, a preacher invented it somewhere in the 1940s. Not until I went to the churches and saw them aflame for I love that quote, aflame for righteousness. Interestingly enough, in the 1950s, it appeared in the Eisenhower presidential campaign. <laughs> but they didn't quote de Tocqueville, they quoted a wise philosopher who came to this country. But it didn't stop there. President Reagan quoted it in a 1982 speech. His speechwriter attributed it to a quotation from de Tocqueville taken from Eisenhower. That's how you cover your tracks. <laughs> and then he started using it time and time again. It's a great quote. And then in 1994, Bill Clinton used the passage to temper his no, 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 no speech in Boston. I'm not sure what that is. But Bill Clinton, President Clinton said this, I believe fundamentally in the common sense and the essential core goodness of the American people. Don't forget that Alexis de Tocqueville said a long time ago that America is great because America is good, and if America ever ceases to be good, she will no longer be great. Now, you say, why are you quoting from all of these presidents a quotation that never existed? Because they wanted it to. Right? They were acknowledging that this is true, even if it didn't come from Alex. It is true. Republican and Democrat alike, if America ceases to be good, America ceases to be great. Problem is, how do you term, determine what is good, what is righteous, what is godly? It has to be the standard of the Word of God. We have nothing else. 
and we lose that, and we have lost everything. So who is responsible? Well, <clears throat> the people who make up a nation. Everyone who lives in this land is responsible to do what is right before their creator. The responsibility falls heavily upon the shoulders of the leader, leaders of our nation, for they have taken upon themselves this task of guiding. David's last words in 2 Samuel emphasize the importance of leadership when he said, The God of Israel spoke, the rock of Israel said to me, When one rules over the people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, that ruler is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning like the brightness after the rain that brings grass from the earth. Oh, and when a righteous ruler leads, the people rejoice. But when wickedness rules, the people run. So I think it's all the people in the nation who are responsible to make this a great nation by living godly. But when people who don't know God don't act like God, we shouldn't be too surprised, which puts the great burden upon us. If my people, right, who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, that's the way to bless the land. It is no guarantee that America will totally recover, but it is its only hope. The good news of Christ that is not just proclaimed from a believer's life, but proclaimed from a godly life, that is the only hope for America. Remember in Genesis chapter 18 when Abraham was met by three friends who were going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham, because he had his nephew Lot in town, pleaded with the angels? How about if there's 50 righteous? Will you destroy the city? No. How about 40? No. How about 30, 20, 10? No, no, no. And if that story proves anything, it highlights the fact that righteous people can defer judgment. At least for a time. I have no idea what God's plans are for America except... I agree with Jefferson. I fear for our country because God is a just God. And his justice will not sleep forever. So, 1 Timothy chapter 4. What do we do? Well, 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 7 says, Do not waste time arguing about godless ideas and old wives' tales Instead, train yourself to be godly. Physical training, verse 8 says, physical training is good. But training for godliness is much better, promising benefits in this life and the life to come. We often skip over that. But godliness has benefits for today. Why? Because godliness is at the heart of a great nation. Not only does it have benefits for this life, but for the life to come. Oskin has said that 86% of Americans claim either to be Christian or Jewish. 
and yet the agenda of America is driven by two or three percent of the people. And it's often because the godly are not living so that they lose their voice. Well, that's the first part of this striking verse. But notice the second part. Godliness makes a nation great, but here's the second part. Sin is a disgrace to any people. So you've got a great nation, and now you've got a great disgrace. There's a scandal going on among human beings, and it's called rebellion against their perfect creator. And the word for rebellion is sin. If righteousness elevates, then sin takes us down. It is shame and dishonor and degradation. Sin brings ruin and misery and death. Why, if something like that were threatening your children, ruin, misery, and death, would you not step in? <laughs> and that's what sin threatens to do to an entire nation. Sin comes back to bite you. As good as it looks. Who's responsible? Well, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So in a general sense, it's everyone. By the way, sin is defined by William Temple, a great evangelical of the early 20th century. Sin is selfishness. I don't think I've seen a better definition. Sin is selfishness. I want to do what I want to do. There's a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof, those are the ways of death. Sin is selfishness. And the greatest threat to freedom, as we said, is freedom because it turns into permissiveness. And now anything goes. Freedom without control is destruction. And everyone knows that. Except in our day and time, whatever boundaries were existed are being pushed down and pushed away. Perhaps some of them should be. But if they come from Creator God, they need to be established. Because freedom without virtue will be lost. Selfishness destroys harmony in a family, it destroys unity in a community, it pits one people group against another. Sin. It's a disgrace. It doesn't make any difference what nation. Sin is a disgrace to any people in any place on planet Earth. And we have a tendency over the years to develop ways to live life to the place where we approve sin, where we embrace it, we don't call it sin. We call it something else. Years ago, I think it was in 1996, 
A pastor in Kansas was asked to open up the Kansas State legislator one day with prayer, as was their custom. And Joe Wright prayed this prayer. I'll not pray at all, but he stood up and said, Heavenly Father, we come before you today to ask your forgiveness and seek your direction and guidance. We know your word says, woe to those who call evil good. And that's exactly what we've done. We've lost our spiritual equilibrium. We've inverted our values. We confess that we've ridiculed the absolute truth of your word in the name of moral pluralism. We've worshipped other gods and called it multiculturalism. We've endorsed perversion and called it an alternative lifestyle. We've exploited the poor and called it a lottery. We've neglected the needy and called it self-preservation. In the name of choice, we've killed the unborn, and then in the name of right to life, we've killed the abortionists. We've neglected to discipline our children and called it building esteem. We've coveted our neighbor's possessions and called it taxes. We've polluted the air with pornography and profanity and called it freedom of expression. We've ridiculed the time-honored values of our forefathers and called it enlightenment. Search us, O God, and know our hearts today. And he kind of concluded that prayer. Well, during that prayer, several legislators got up and walked out. <laughs> Paul Harvey read it on his radio broadcast, and it became a thing, right? But it was, I was interested to see the take on it from one individual, Terry Mattingly, who is a syndicated religion uh, columnist back in the day, and he explained it perhaps in the best way when he said the easy answer is that Joe Wright read a prayer about sin. The complicated answer is that Wright jumped into America's tense debate about whether some things are always right or whether some things are always wrong. And when we say shame because of sin, our society cannot take it. And here we are. So on this wonderful birthday, we have got to acknowledge that righteousness lifts up a nation, but sin is a disgrace. Polybius, who was a, a Greek historian back in the 4th century B.C., uh, said this, and if we could have that on the screen. And I'm, I'm going to have to read it from here. What is decisive is that the constitution of a country rests in a bedding of customs. Now, this was written 400 years before Christ. Traditions, moral standards, and if that bedding is corrupted, the best constitution will not hold up. And the bedding of customs and moral absolutes that gave the founding of this, brought this country into being has been lost to a great degree, and even a good constitution is not going to hold it together. We could say leaders are responsible, we could say people are responsible, but I thought this interesting. This comes from the pen of Erwin Lutzer, who wrote several years ago, it's popular to blame the Supreme Court and the humanists for our country's eroding standards of decency and growing disrespect for human life. But the responsibility might more properly be laid at the feet of those who know the living God but have failed to influence society. 
If we were few in number, we might evade the blame. But here are tens of thousands of evangelical congregations and several million born-again believers in America, yet we continue to lose crucial battles, and perhaps the church doesn't suffer. Perhaps the church doesn't suffer for the sins of the world as much as the world suffers for the sins of the church. Ouch. That was said in 1986, and the situation has only gotten worse. If my people, who are called by my name. And so what do we do? I hate to go to birthday parties that are downers. And that's kind of all I've shared with you so far today. But here's the hope. You and I have been placed in this world for such a time as this. With God on our side. That does not guarantee prosperity or health or protection from all danger. But does guarantee a divine mission. And if we, by the grace of God, in the fear of God, live godly lives, people will sit up and take notice and will have a chance to speak. It was Joe Stowell who said, no matter how dark and brutish American society may become, it can never extinguish the light of Christ-like hearts and homes and churches. There is a light that we need to shine in an ever-darkening place where the light once was brighter than it is. We need to acknowledge that America has some problems. In that wonderful song, America, America, God mend thy every flaw. And that should be our prayer. Sin has brought shame to our country and it's time for us to humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God that he may lift us up in due time. So what do we do? Live a godly life, 1 Timothy 4. Train yourself to be godly. Live a godly life. You're an oasis in the midst of a desert. Number two, pray for your leaders. Pastor Doug read this passage a moment ago from 1 Timothy 2. I urge you, first of all, to pray for everybody, says the New Living Translation. Ask God to help them, intercede on their behalf, and give thanks for them. Verse 2, pray this same way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God, our Savior. When you go down to verse 8, in every place of worship, I want men to pray with holy hands lifted up to God, free from anger and controversy. We think that the way to win the world is to argue. We think the way to win the world is to attack. And I'm all for those who can stand in the hot place and argue with reason from the truth of Scripture. But our only hope is godly lives empowered by the Spirit of God proclaiming the message of Christ. It's the only way. I don't know if I have time. I'll do it anyhow. Charles Colson said, How can evangelicals engage our culture as it grows ever more resistant to our message? 
Our first instinct may be to turn to politics, but the effect of political activism, those effects are limited. Today's most vexing social problems defy political solutions. What's more, the media stereotypes have made Christianity nearly synonymous with the religious right so that our political voice is often drowned out, so that our political voice often drowns out our prophetic voice. They think it's all about politics. No matter what our message, it won't take root in the hearts of others unless they see what they hear. The early church said we cannot stop talking about what we have seen and heard. And if the gospel is to be heard today, it must be seen in the glorious power of the Holy Spirit as Christians live like Christ. John Wycliffe was the one who translated the Bible into English. First translation back in the 1300s. He was distraught that the Bible used in the pulpit was not the language of the people. That the good news of Christ being proclaimed was coming from a dead language. So he put out to translate it into the common English tongue. He did it against all kinds of verbal and physical abuse. It was a mammoth undertaking. But Wycliffe did not stop until the translation was finished in 1382. And in the flyleaf of that very first English translation, he wrote these words. This Bible is translated and shall make possible a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. We've forgotten where that's come from. Based on a Bible translation is a government for all. Little did Wycliffe realize that 530 years later, a lean, weary president leading a broken nation in the midst of a civil war would borrow those inspiring words. And on a bleak November day at Gettysburg, the blood-drenched fields of Gettysburg, Abraham Lincoln said, We hear highly resolved that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall not have a new birth that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom and that the government of the people and by the people and for the people shall not perish from this earth. The only hope for that is God and His Word and a church that lives according to both. Let's pray. Lord, it is exciting to have an impossible challenge because when it is done, you get all the glory. There's nothing we can say that can change the situation. Except, Lord, send your Spirit in the midst of our hearts that we may affect our world today. America, America, God shed his grace on thee. May we be blessed with righteousness from sea to shining sea. O oh Lord, I pray, on this eventful day, turn our hearts to you. In Jesus' name, amen.